very much. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see everyone here this morning. And to those of you that are with us online, welcome to you. And some of you are home even here in Idaho because of the, the snow. Others are listening at other places around the country and the world. It's really wonderful to be able to have this technology to make it happen. Um, if you have your uh, Bibles, please, you'd be so kind as to turn to the book of Luke, once again, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to read verses 46 through 55. And I would invite you, if you're able, to stand with me for the reading of God's holy word. Luke, chapter 1, 46 through 55. This is the word of God. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He... uh, uh, Sorry, uh, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Well, in contrast to the all too often frivolous response of the world at large, to the birth of Jesus Christ. The Bible's accounts are a little different, aren't they? They point to the awesome nature of the event, the wonder that is part of this event. Men and women who were made aware of the coming of the Savior reflected in their words and their actions the the solemn nature of what was taking place and the deep joy that the occasion brought about in their hearts. Mary, as Jesus' mother, was no exception. It's very possible that as she traveled along the road to Elizabeth's house, that she was pondering perhaps on the song of Hannah. You remember Hannah singing um, after the uh, birth of Samuel, who she had been longing for for, uh, for such a long time. And her song has a, a little different ring to it. Um, Hannah's was more of a shout of triumph over her enemies. Uh, Mary's is not that way so much. It's more of exalting. Just It's kind of gushing out of her uh, about the power of the faithfulness of God. And the word magnify is an interesting one. It comes from a Greek word that begins with the prefix mega. Mega. I, lo- I almost... I titled this Mary's Magnificent Magnificat, but we could have said Magnificent Mega Magnificat. 
because the word mega or the prefix mega comes into play a couple of times through this. She's just overwhelmed with how enormous this is and how great what God has done. That, that, uh, that word magnify means to make large or to make something great. But with that mega on there, it, there's connotations of, of splendor, of, of, of magnificence, of extraordinary wonder. And in verses 46 and 47, my soul magnifies the Lord and my servant rejoices in God, my Savior. That and is very strong grammatically in the Greek. It links together Lord and Savior as the one true God. She's not doing the all too frequent dichotomy that happens even in evangelical churches that, that, that dissects Jesus Christ into Lord on one hand and Savior on the other, and you can take one side or the other at, at, at liberty. No, he is Lord and Savior. He is your master and redeemer. And she links that together in her praise. There is nothing frivolous in this song at all. She knows that she is going to bear the Messiah. Just let that thought sink in about what that would really mean to anyone. Calvin points out uh, that Hebrews 5, 9 tells us that as Lord and Savior, God does more than deliver us once. He is the author of eternal salvation. Only the one who is Lord and Savior can do that. And Mary is just overwhelmed with the marvel of this truth. So she can't help but testify of the greatness of her Savior and her Master. Like Mary, you and I have many good reasons to exalt our God and King, particularly as we consider the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We'll be guided by her thinking here as we do so. It's interesting, uh, most scholars figure that Mary is maybe 16 years old, 17 years old, somewhere in there, 16, 17, 18. I mean, think back, you, you older, more grisly specimens of humanity that are here. Back to when you were 16 or 17, you think about the thoughts you had about God or about much of anything, really. Uh, most, at least in our society, many, and no offense to teenagers, but many teenagers in our society are consumed with stuff that is useless, frivolous dribble that doesn't count for anything. And many of us were that way when we were growing up, too. We were consumed with uh, either somebody in the opposite sex or what car we were going to have or what job we were going to do or, or just something else like that. Um, but when it came to really deep thoughts, we didn't really have them. When you read, when, as you listen to what Mary has to say here, you could tell, um, it's not that she didn't have a sense of humor or didn't do anything fun in her life. We don't know about any of that. But it's pretty evident that she thought a lot about her Lord. This just didn't come out of, out of the blue somewhere without any um, background at all. She clearly had been meditating much upon the scriptures and much upon 
the Lord that those scriptures reveal. So what does she, what are some of the reasons that she gives for, for magnifying, for making God large or great in the eyes of all to whom she is speaking? Well, first, verses 48 through 50, she notes that he has looked on or regarded the humble estate of his servant. Now that word looked on or regarded uh, is a, is a, an intensified version because of its construction uh, of the verb to see. That's uh, a pretty simple word, but when it's intensified, it has the idea of not just, you know, letting something come through your eyeballs and it registers, but there's a gazing. There's a, there is a, is a it can be, have the connotation of wonder, of looking at something that you just can't drink it in. I remember... Many of you have had this kind of experience, whether it's, uh, I remember I had this experience at, Grand, at the Grand Canyon, at Crater Lake, uh, Taj Mahal, a few other places like that, where you walk up to it and you just kind of, <laughs> you look at it and you, it, the scope of it is so big and the enormity of what you're seeing is so great that to take it in is almost impossible. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's that... And, but yet you can't take your eyes away because you're, you're trying to make sense of it. The scope of it's so huge and you, the relationships to everything and the distances and the, and, and the, the um, relationships between everything there is just, how do, you, how do you take that in? And of course, every time you take a picture of it, it's so disappointing, right? You take that picture, it's like, ah! It, it didn't capture that same wonder. It's, it becomes flat. Well, the idea of Gazing with wonder uh, is in this this uh, word, and also it it can be used in the context. And I think that the Lord is not gazing at us with wonder, except maybe to shake his head sometimes. But this is it can have the connotation of gazing with care, the idea of caring about something or someone. And I think that that is the connotation that that Mary is after here, that the Lord has fixed his gaze upon us out of love, out of care, out of a desire to help. Um, you know, uh, parents, when your kids get sick and they're pitiful and you look at them and your heart's filled with love and you just want to help them and you're, you're looking and you're trying to attend to what can I do um, it's not like, you know, go get a glass of water, kid, right? No, there's, a, there's a, a gazing out of care and love. That is the idea of what Mary is saying here. And in this, and in this regarding that God does for us, notice he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. In our, he doesn't look at us, he didn't look at Mary because she was so, Wonderful. Let me say that again. He did not look at Mary in this way because she was so wonderful and because she deserved it. Okay? Mary knows that. That's why she says what she says. That's what makes it so remarkable. And when he looks at you and me, he doesn't look at us with love and compassion and tenderness and devotion to us and to our souls. Because we are so deserving. Because we're so beautiful. 
because we're so spotless. He looks at us in our humble estate. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. In our low condition, he brings joy to our hearts because he cares for us. And not only that, in that bringing of joy, the joy is so evident that others recognize it. He brings about that recognition uh, of joy in others. And verse 48 makes that very clear. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now the word servant here in uh, the ESV and many other English translations, um, it's an appropriate translation, but it really is a, a, a sanitized translation. Um, the word means slave, slave girl, a, a, someone who has no rights, someone who has no deserving, someone who has no, in that day, really not much in the way of personhood or anything else. That's the term she uses. Now, those that elevate Mary to uh, near divine or even uh, divine status love to sing the words about how everyone will call her blessed um, as if that makes her um, uh, right up there with Jesus himself. But the intent of the passage gets ignored. Mary knows exactly that she is no better than anyone else. That's what's so remarkable about it. The blessings upon her are only because of God's mercy. What we are recognizing when we call her blessed is we're recognizing her joy. Yeah, look, she's happy. She uh, is full of rejoicing at what God blessed her with doing. And so we're rejoicing. We come alongside her, uh, her in her joy. We're not... Um, exalting her position as making her the queen of heaven, which some do. Mary perhaps was thinking of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 918, um, for the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. What, a, what an incredible uh, promise that the psalmist uh, brings to us from the Lord. Mary was needy. She and Joseph were not rich. They ended up having to stay in a stable, remember? Um, they didn't arrive in a carriage. They didn't have an entourage. They didn't have any of those kinds of things. And the needy, certainly the psalmist may very well have been thinking of individuals, but also this applies to even the nation of Israel itself. Promised through the ages of the Messiah, and yet, the least of the nations, right? The despised of the world. And yet, God did not forget them. God did not forget his promises. He doesn't forget his people. We are among the needy as well. Uh, spiritually poor and destitute, he does not forget us. And, and our expectation of, of joy in the Lord will not perish. So, he's regarded us in our low condition and brought us joy and made that joy so evident uh, that everyone can see it. Mary was one happy gal uh, at what the Lord was doing uh, in and through her. 
And she goes on and kind of elaborates on this in verse 49, where uh, she says, He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, there's a couple of things here. Um, he who is mighty comes from a great word. We've talked about this word before. In the Greek, it's, uh, it's almost letter-for-letter letter transliteration of the word we get dynamite from. This is a powerful, explosive, irresistible force that, that uh, Mary is speaking of. This, this one who is irresistible, this one whose power is explosive and cannot be contained, has done great things. And great things, guess what that word is in Greek? Mega. Megala is the word, but it's mostly mega. It's, here we have that same word. She's just, that same prefix. She is just uh, astounded at the power of God and how great he is. He has done incredible things. Sending the Lord Jesus Christ to be born of a virgin is not something that any man would ever think of, much less have the ability to carry out. But God has done it. Again, from the Psalm, Psalm 71, 19, Your righteousness, O God, is very high. You who have done great things. O God, who is like you? I mean, just think about what God in His righteousness has done in Mary's life. Um, she's, she's come uh, as, uh, she's, she's here in God's presence, but she is being used of the Lord as a virgin, this incredible miracle that is taking place. And yet, we read up a little bit earlier, uh, in verse 27, where the angel is speaking to her and reminds her that uh, nothing will be impossible with God. He has accomplished it. He has done this incredible thing. And um, I, th I think it's an interesting connection here uh, that uh, if we had time, we could spend a little more digging into, but the thinking about the connection between God's righteousness and God's might. There's, a, there's different kinds of power, right? There's, there's a righteous, holy power, and then there's a despotic kind of power. But despotic... Uh, power always must come to an end at some point. And that is because God is greater than the devil. With God, God's righteousness is absolute and perfect. And therefore, his power is incorruptible and does not fade away, just as he does, does not fade away. So, anyway, we could talk more about that, but we'll, we'll stick with what we've got here in our text right now. So, God regards his servants. He regards you. He regards me in our lowly condition, just as he did Mary, and brings glory to his name as he shows his power and righteousness in us who are the weak and the despised things of the world. So speaking of his power, Mary goes on to elaborate a little bit more on that in verses um, 51 through 53. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So this strength is shown in several different ways. The, 
the uh, remember last week we were talking about Zechariah and how uh, we were talking about the uh, Zechariah was talking about God's mercy that was accomplished, that God's redemption that was accomplished, it, that construction of his, it's, it's a done righteousness, it's a done redemption, it's a done mercy. Uh, similar structure here. He has, uh, verse uh, 51, shown strength is the idea of he has done strength. He has done power. Our Lord does power. We talk about some people do lunch, right? Some of us do windows. <laughs> um, our Lord does power. And that is his characteristic. There's a string here in the, of, of, of strong past tense verbs. He has done this, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. Each one of them is not so much talking about them happening in the past, but this particular form, and particularly because it's piled on, indicates the finality of what God has done. God's deeds are decisive. The, the, the impact of what he has done carries on, but the deeds are accomplished. Aren't you glad that we're not still waiting around to figure, for God to figure out how to save us? He's already done it. He's carried out his plan from before the foundation of the world that was established the promises made to the Son. They're, they're accomplished. They're done. The theologians talk about this, the already and the not yet aspect of theological truths. Um, already God has accomplished it. Already he's victorious. There's a not yet component where we see the, the full consummation of everything and, and it's full revelation um, in God's good time. But for us, we can walk with the confidence that it is a done deal. The Lord has accomplished his, uh, his powerful action. He's accomplished his powerful plan. His strength is greater than all that the world regards as powerful. Notice in verse 51, he's, he's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Um, if you're filling in the blanks there, in the, he's... I, Put the word intellectuals in here. He scatters the intellectuals of this world. I thought of the, the, the comment of Paul in Romans chapter 1 and verse 22. Speaking of those who, were, who are in rebellion against God, who are set in their ways and, and their hatred of him and the desire to live as unto themselves. He describes them as professing themselves to be wise. They become fools. The world's filled with a lot of intellectuals um, or people who think they are. People who um, have memorized certain talking points and have been persuaded by them and can only think in those terms. We see that in our political environment all the time, do we not? On a national level, even on a local level, people love to spout certain talking points and they, it... it uh, as long as you don't interrupt the talking points with any other factual information, they sound actually reasonable. But if you try to get them off of that, they can't really um, do much more than sputter and repeat those points again. The Lord scatters such people. Thankfully, he's the one who's done it. The word scatter here is an interesting one. 
it's a it's a farming term. It has to do with scattering seed, or it can also be used to winnow, where you're tossing stuff up in the air. It's that kind of idea. But in a, in a context like this, the the idea is putting to flight an enemy, particularly a defeated enemy. He's there's. If you think about the scattering at the Tower of Babel, the routing of Israel's enemies uh, as they scurried like ants uh, trying to get away from Israel or away from the Lord's judgment on the battlefield. But this battlefield is different. This is not uh, in the, the physical realm. This is in the mental realm. He has scattered the proud of this in their thoughts. It's the idea of uh, the proud or the, in the, the battlefield is in the proud imaginations of men who have lifted themselves up against God, lifted themselves up enough to say, we, are, we have our own standard of righteousness and we are not going to be uh, told that uh, it's wrong. Um, and, and in the, uh, the thoughts of their hearts, the idea of hearts there or their minds has to do with the attitude or their uh, the, the mindset that they have that's set against God. And on that battlefield, mankind cannot stand against the infinite God. And when it comes to the incarnation, the incarnation, talk about a shot across the bow. It's not even across the bow. It's amidships hitting the powder room. The incarnation absolutely baffles the foolishly wise of this world because they don't understand it. They reject it. Man just cannot uh, understand how God operates. And apart from his working in our hearts to humble us and give us uh, a desire for him and, and regenerating us, we never will. We'll be in our darkness because, and we will like it because we foolishly think that we are smarter than God is. I remember... Uh, a number of years ago, speaking with a Mormon gentleman here in town um, who was, found out that I was pastor here and he had seen our motto on our sign out here, uh, which is also on the front of your bulletin there, a witness to the reforming power of the triune God. And he started jumping on me about the Trinity and basically his whole, he was very contemptuous about it, very dismissive. Um, clearly, that doesn't make any sense, so therefore it can't be true. And that was his whole argument. And my whole argument was, so you only want a God you can, you can understand and control. Okay. Oh, well, you know, it just this doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. It can't be true. It's like, God, it isn't, his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. He is an infinite, eternal, tri-being, trinity. That's what it declares. You can either take it or leave it, but that's what it says. It's not about whether you understand it or not. Well, the incarnation to the, to the lost makes just as much sense. How can that happen? I mean, can, uh, how can a virgin suddenly conceive? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it does if you believe in an infinite holy God who is able to do anything that he wants to do through the ministry of his Holy Spirit and his Son. It's not a problem. But if you're not willing to accept what he says about himself, well then, yep, you're, you're 
up the creek without a metal paddle, and you will not understand, and never will. Mary is saying, the proud just don't get God. He scatters them. And I'm thankful that we have the scattering idea. You know, sometimes people in their wickedness um, shoot themselves in the foot. Um, you know, one of the, when you look at, this is not going to become a political sermon. I was just talking to somebody about that just a few minutes ago. But I want you to think about our political realm right now. The stuff that's going on in our nation did not just happen yesterday. Somebody didn't wake up and go, I think we're going to totally undo marriage. I think we're going to uh, tax people into oblivion. I think we're going to reduce us from the greatest nation in the world to uh, another third-rate nation that's ruled by an oligarchy. Uh, I, I think that maybe we'll undo the Constitution. Um, they didn't do that last week. People have been working on this for generations. But they've been doing it so much behind the scenes, nobody paid attention. The problem with, I'm going to use the word conspiracy, is that conspiracies are really great at the beginning for them because they're all behind the scenes and nobody knows. The danger point is that the further along they go, the more they have to expose their hand. You look at what's happening in this country and people are beginning to wake up and go, no. Sometimes we look at what's happening around here, folks, and we think, it's pretty hopeless. Sometimes it feels that way, doesn't it? You just like, oh, oh my. Is there any remedy for what we're seeing? But there is. Even in the political social realm. I'm not talking in an eschatological framework here, okay? I'm not talking about ushering the kingdom. I'm talking about just people waking up and going, that's wrong. Even you think about the woke stuff that's going on. It's bankrupting cities. San, San Francisco's complaining now that they're going bankrupt. Well, what do you know? Because people are like, this is stupid. This is utter foolishness. Whether they're Christians or not, this is utter foolishness. And the Lord starts to scatter and weaken the arm of the, of the wicked. How much more in the spiritual realm when we marshal our arguments against God? This is the Lord's laugh in the heavens and hold the wicked in derision and scatters their plans. He's the one who lifts up kings, puts them down. He's the one who puts everything into place, people. And he will carry it out. Whatever it looks like to us, the wicked don't have a chance in the long run. And that should give us joy and give us confidence and a sense of peace that our Lord has things well in hand. Mary certainly was living in a time and place where Israel was not free. They were under the boot of Rome. And yet she is saying, the Lord's victorious. The incarnation is the, is the trigger in her mind that shows that the Lord's, the Lord's plans cannot be undone by men. And that takes me also to, uh, it's 52, I already mentioned something like this of raising up kings and putting them down. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. The, in, in Psalm 107, David points out that, he pours, that God pours contempt 
on princes. And in Daniel 2 and 21, we uh, read these words uh, that I mentioned earlier. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. Now, it's not that God is just capriciously acting so he can show who's boss. Calvin observes, it is rather the depravity of men that overturns the state of things because nobody acknowledges that the disposal of everyone is placed in God's will and power. The fact is, is that all that is loftiest in this world is still subject to God, is still responsible for obeying his commands, suffering the consequences when they do not obey. We see that in nations around the world, including our own. Calvin goes on to note that we should not be surprised when the Lord does not tolerate rulers who are filled with insolence, indulgence, pride, and ingratitude. Even those that may otherwise be proficient at their jobs, the Lord doesn't just uh, uh, keep somebody in because they keep the economy strong. When you're arrogant, he's not impressed. And he may give you exactly what we deserve instead of the blessing that we had before because a leader gets a little full of himself. I think of Herod in Caesarea. Remember when he went down there to give an oration? He was pretty ticked with the people for some reason. And he goes down there and he gives an oration. They go, oh, the voice of a God. And he doesn't hasten to give glory to the one true and living God and God strikes him dead. Herod was a, he was a creep. He was really a miserable individual, uh, a usurper, dishonest and all of that. But he was a great nation builder. And the Lord just took him out. So, you know, we're, we have a tendency to want to look for our salvation in the hands of strong leaders. We need to be looking to the hand of our God. And Mary says that, Mary knows that that is where your faith is properly placed. Because what, what, what happens to the rich of this world? Verse 53, he's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. I love the contrast here. Uh, the rich uh, are, the, 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 the poor are full. But the, the rich are just empty. And that's the word there, empty. They've got nothing. Those who are, we, we, we can look around and see those who are wealthy. And yeah, we look at people like Elon Musk or, oh, I even hate to say this name and out loud, George Soros and other people like that. They've got lots and lots of money. Um, but what do they have really? Without Christ, they have their reward. It's in this world. And I really wonder sometimes how much even they enjoy it in this world. Um, The Lord impoverishes them. He sends them away empty. Now, take a look here also at filling the hungry with good things. The rich he sent away empty. Um, his God's strength is greater than all that the world regards as hopeless. Not just what the world regards as 
as strong and mighty and all of that. But sometimes the world just looks at situations and just think this is hopeless. There's, there's no power among us that can do, can fix this. And yet God's in the business of hope. Uh, this time of year, some of you probably watched the, the classic movie, The Christmas Carol. The gross the Christmas present. Remember when he's standing there uh, with Scrooge and he opens up his robe and reveals the two impoverished children underneath the robe. Right? Do you remember what the names of those children were? Ignorance and want. And Scrooge doesn't want to look at them. But the way it's the way Charles Dickens conveys it is that these things, the this ignorance and this want, it's there. We you can't get rid of it. It's hopeless. And all you can do is just throw a bone at it. It's, it's really kind of a depressing sort of portion there because uh, the rest of it, you know, in Scrooge's reclamation, right, and his turning over a new leaf is all about him using his money to try to help everyone. And yet he can't get rid of ignorance and want, no matter how rich he is. He just can't. He can do what he can do, what he's responsible for, but those things are there. Um, uh, the the, uh, the Ghost of Christmas present says, they're everyone's children. Beware of them. Across their brow is written the word doom. The world looks at ignorance. The world looks at poverty. The world looks at suffering as, hope, as a hopeless business. Yes, let's throw everything we can at it, but it's, it's, it's out of desperation with I don't see any real hope that those things are that they think that we're really going to fix it. I suppose in some ways, they maybe ought to listen to what the Lord has to say when, he, when Jesus said, the poor you have with you always. But the Lord is greater than what the world thinks of as hopeless. He exalts the lowly. We've seen that. He exalts those of humble estate there in verse 52. I, think, I thought of Paul's words in the book of 2 Corinthians where he said, when I am weak, then am I strong. And he fills the hungry. I just, again, love this contrast. Filling the hungry, emptying the rich. Matthew 5, verse 6, Jesus commented that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. Of course, there's other promises of his general provision of every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father Above, He attends to our needs in every detail. We're of more value than many sparrows. He will attend to all that we need. Whereas the rich, what do they have? Um, they have the, the fleeting emptiness of their bank account, which can easily be done away with. Finally, in verses 54 and 55, uh, we, his, we read, he has helped his servant Israel. Before, he said he has looked on his servant. That was in verse 48. He's looked upon his servant and speaking particularly of herself. Now she broadens out the scope here to the servant Israel and changes the verb from regarded to helped. The word helped means to take someone's part or be devoted to. Now remember, that idea of regarding had the idea of looking upon someone with care and devotion to them. This has a similar kind of idea, but 
It's more, this is more the action part. This is the, is how it's manifested. Um, and this is a, uh, a, well, this is the thought that Spurgeon had about it um, in a little book called Faith's Checkbook. Um, God, he says, will go heart and soul with his people and enter in deepest sympathy into their position. It's not just he's sitting up in the heavens somewhere and going, well, I really care about them, but it should be nice if somebody would do something for them. Now, he's helped. He has taken our part, is the construction uh, of this in the grammar. And, and the grammar helps us in some other ways. Um, it, Mary is, uh, she's using infinitive forms, uh, like, uh, in this case, of the verb remember, to remember. Um, he has helped to remember his mercy. It, it, you, you miss that in this, in this um, translation. The, the idea of using an infinitive this way in Greek is to show the manner of, of doing something. So Mary is, is trying to help us show how the Lord helps. The manner of his helping is to remember his mercy, to remember his covenant promises. Just as he gave this word to the fathers and to Abraham and his seed, Mary knows a thing or two about the covenants. She knows her Bible. In Christ's coming, the incarnation, this is part of God's covenant faithfulness to his own true Israel. Galatians 3, 28 and 29, Romans 9, Genesis 8, 1. All of these passages, which I'll t- let you take a look at on your own. Genesis 8, 1 speaks of God remembering Noah. Uh, God has not forgotten us. Uh, this is the way he has helped us. He has remembered his promise and carried it out. And notice the scope here. Um, the scope here um, is, uh, is helped his servant Israel, fathers, Abraham, and offspring forever. Take a look back at Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41. And uh, I'm going to read verses um, 8 through 10. But you... Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Sounds to me like Mary has read this passage. Because those... All those thoughts are there in her song. This, the manner of his helping is to remember his covenant, but it's not just to Mary. This song is not about Mary being translated somehow into a, deifi, uh, a, a, a deity of some kind or, or quasi-deity, but she recognizes that the grace and mercy that has been shown to her in allowing her to be the one who bears the Messiah is not just about her, it's about God's promises to all of his people. And that's what she's rejoicing in. Uh, that's the distinction between the first point, which is about regarding or caring about, and, and here, 
the, the actual carrying out of what God has said. This is the, these are the specific, this is the specific application of the general statements that Mary has already made. She does not think of her exaltation as the goal of God's activities, in other words. Just part of his fulfillment to his promises to his people. And so, as we draw to a close, thinking about this mega magnificat of Mary's. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, God has come in the flesh. God has shown his tender care of us, his people. His absolute mastery over the affairs of men, his faithfulness to his promises, are all revealed in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But as he reveals his providence, however, his power and his faithfulness, he's not just demonstrating that he's God and we need to sit down, shut up, and listen. There is an aspect of that where we do need to sit down and be silent before him. But he demonstrates even more than that about what an incredible, loving, personal God he is and that he has taken our part. He has devoted himself to our deliverance. No wonder Mary sang for joy. May each of our hearts be filled with equal exultation, with equal joy, so that we too may magnify our magnificent Lord and Savior. Let's pray. I thank you, Father, for our great Savior and the great salvation that you have provided for us, ordained for us, and brought about for us through the perfect work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for confounding the wisdom of men For without your wisdom at work, we would have no hope whatsoever of deliverance. We would have self-destructed long ago. But Father, we ask that you would help us to follow Mary's example. And as we consider the coming of Christ and all that goes with that, Help us to do so in a deeply joyful and sober way. Let us not turn, uh, let our eyes be turned by the frivolity of the season. And Lord, as we enjoy the things that there are to enjoy, fine, but let us most of all exalt in you and leave all else beside if necessary so that our eyes are fixed on you so that we would make you great in the eyes of those around us by the way that we speak and praise and live as in your sight and behold before the eyes of many witnesses around. Be glorified in us, we pray. In Jesus' name.